The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to a Monday morning on Positive Talk Radio. My name is Kevin McDonald. I'm your host, and I want you to stay with us the entire time. We have got an extraordinary uh, conversation that we are going to have this morning. It is well worth your time to spend it with us because we're going to be talking with uh, Nicholas Harrison. He is a... Um, He's an actor, he's a, he's a stuntman, he's also an author, and he's also a sexual abuse survivor in the Catholic Church. And we're going to talk about all of that in just a moment. But first, but first, I always have to say, hello, Mr. Benny, how are you? Hi, uh, good morning. How are things? Doing uh, awesome so far. How was your uh, Mother's Day yesterday? What'd you do? My, I, it was very, very quiet. My, my mom passed away, mm -hmm. as you know, uh, last July. And and so I just spent the the day having a conversation with her. Great. And I great. don't even need a phone anymore. <laughs> Cheap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I've got. I've, she's got my number, and I've got her number, right. and uh, and I talked to some of the people that are in my world, and uh, yeah. they confirmed that. Yeah, so it's that always available. I guess always available. Always available. Always available. Good. And and uh, it was it was a great day. Yeah, I had a great day for me. And uh, I talked to all of my uh, uh, women friends, some Good. with kids and some mm -hmm. without kids. Mm -hmm. And sure. I, th I think, you know, I was thinking about this and uh, I like your input. I think that we need to rather than just have Mother's Day, we need to celebrate the divine feminine uh, and and create a day to celebrate women and also another day to celebrate all men too, uh, so to make it equal. I, I think that would be, I, I think that would be fun for, for everybody to do. And it'd be another day for people to buy flowers and stuff. Yeah, couldn't agree more. <laughs> Who doesn't there. like that? Who doesn't like that? Exactly. Well, you know, we've got, we've got a very, you know, this is positive talk radio, but we've got a very difficult topic today that we are going to discuss and the reason that we're going to discuss it here is because the outcome if if people understand it and uh, um, are willing to come forward they they can have a good outcome because what happens to some of these folks in the course of their lives is it is a lifelong thing and we're, right. we're talking with uh, Nicholas um, Harrison who was well, I'll let him tell the story. He's 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 got a one man uh, show that he wrote that was nominated for the 2018 Jesse Richardson Award. He's also got a book that's out now that's called Safe Place: The True Story of Faith, Betrayal, and the Power of the Force, which is scheduled, which is out now, I believe. And uh, I love I love the uh, uh, cross reference with uh, Star Wars and the Force be with you. So, young man, may this Force be with you. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing good, thank you. And the book is Safe Space. Safe Space. Yes. Yeah, you're yeah. right. What did I say? Place. 
safe place. Oh, <laughs> but that's safe? a good title too. I like that title too. <laughs> that's where you want to be. <laughs> that'll be the that'll be the next book, Safe Place. Exactly, safe space, and right. uh, and so and Nicholas, we we met uh, not too long ago, and we've done another podcast. If you want to go to positivetalkradio.net, you can listen to that presentation. Uh, but this is a different audience, so I thought that we would go through some of the, the things again. Uh, first of all, you're a screenwriter, you're an actor, you're a director, you're you're in Vancouver, which is uh, Hollywood light, as they say. And so you've done a, and you're also a, um, a stuntman mm-hmm. and you also choreograph fights for the movies. So I you, do. you, and you're also a uh, professor or a teacher of drama in a, in a, in a college, correct? That's right. I have a PhD. So I'm actually a doctor on top of all of that. Holy mackerel. Where, where do you, <laughs> you're an educated man. That's awfully nice to hear. No, I'm just so bored, boring and normally that I have to like fill my life with other things to make myself interesting. Yes. Well, you know, part of part of the uh, uh, growing up and um, getting all of that education, you were put into a private school when you were um, young in your in your primary years. Um, and what's what 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 school was that? Well, it was uh, a school up north uh, in, a, in a small town uh in british columbia and uh it was you know like the place where i grew up was a poor community it was a very much a uh a laborer community you know the forestry industry and and pulp mills and all that uh my dad was uh, was a welder and my mom she worked in a bank and they just wanted to get a good education for me so instead of sending me to the local public school they enrolled me in this private school a catholic private school uh, from kindergarten to grade four. Um, they wanted the best education for me. They wanted to give me a better life and to give me an advantage in life, you know, as, as parents really do tend to want to do for their children. Uh, unbeknownst to them, and of course, my parents were not Catholic, so it was a Catholic school. And I went to that school. They had uh, children there who were mostly, you know, from Catholic families, and they had some uh, other children who were in the church's care, who were formerly from residential schools. And um, during the time that I was there, from kindergarten to grade four, uh, I was abused initially physically, but then as it moved on sexually, uh, like it just it got you name it, it happened to me. Uh, and I lived like for all that time that I went there, I had to carry that secret. I was told that because I wasn't Catholic, uh, this is what they were doing to me to, so I would earn God's love that I would um, destroy my family if I said anything to them about it. Uh, They groomed me initially. So it didn't just immediately start with the abuse. It was groomed over time. And I talk about that in my book and how pedophiles will groom their victims and in this case how the how the priests and the the principal of the school groomed me and the only reason i was actually removed from that school because a lot of people the typical response to a survivor who discloses what has happened to them as an adult and i've heard it so many times is why didn't you just tell someone and it doesn't work like that when you're carrying such a secret and you are made to believe it's your secret and that you're the cause of it and that if you tell anyone, your family will be destroyed. 
that's a huge responsibility on a five-year-old child. So who's going to, who's going to believe a five-year-old child that the Catholic priest that they go to and worship as being, you know, above us all that somebody we go to for all of our, our spiritual needs and stuff like that is, is abusing uh, mm -hmm. people. Nobody's going to believe you at five. Oh, it's true. And so like it was when I was in, in grade four. So uh, I had been whipped on that Friday by um, one of the lay teachers who um, like to uh, basically whip the student who was last in the class with her electrical cord, which had a big bakelite prong on it. This is back in the 70s. And um, so, of course, I was always shoved to the back, and she got me pretty good that day. I had about 14 welts and bruises on my arms and legs. And it was on the Sunday, ironically on the Sunday, that uh, my mom had me help her with the laundry. And back then, of course, to save heating costs, we would put clothes on the clothesline outside our house. And of, of course, I was covering myself with full pants and a full sleeve shirt, and it was warm out. And my mom wanted me to put on a short sleeves and shorts. And I was finding a million excuses as to why I couldn't. And of course, being a mom, she won eventually and sent me to my room to put on lighter clothes. And it was during that time I started to panic because I knew that she would see all the bruises on my body. But then it dawned on me that I had only ever been told that God would destroy my family if the welts or if, if, if I told them about their abuse, they didn't say anything about a regular teacher and this particular teacher was not a priest or a nun so when i came out and my mom noticed all this immediate her response was what happened to you and i finally told her what had happened and she pulled me out of the school immediately uh, when she was on the phone with uh, my main abuser who was the principal of the school the next day she took time off of work to stay home with me that day and she said he's not coming back and he begged with her to have me complete the term at the school so he could get his government funding. And of course, she swore at him and she, you know, expletive, expletive and hung up the phone on him. And of course, it was years later in my late 20s that I finally disclosed uh, the extent of the abuse beyond that beating from that one teacher. So, so, so you took and you had like uh, 13 or 14 welts on your body. How, how, much did that you that whipping lasted a little while then that was not oh like, yeah it was like a good five minutes in the hall and and, and that was in the, now this is in the 70s right mm -hmm. yes this was 1977 and you would think that we in 1977 that wouldn't happen but but now that teacher was taking her cue apparently from the culture of the school that that was allowed that that was okay to to do that to a kid now you, how many how many priests were involved in this abuse i mean there was the the principal but were there others yeah there was another there was a father as well who was one of my main abusers uh there were other priests as well who um did the corporal uh, corporal punishments like the you know, the strappings. So, I mean, um, the full range of the discipline of the school at the time, because strapping was allowed. So, you know, hands being strapped. Um, one brother would actually have you place your hands on your desk and he would inspect to see if your fingernails were clean. And if they were dirty, he had a bamboo uh, 
uh, cane that he carried with him. And he would actually hit the back of your hands and your knuckles with the bamboo cane uh, to punish you. Other uh, instructors like him would sometimes punish the students by putting them in a closet in the classroom where you'd actually sit there for hours, uh, oftentimes um, wetting yourself because you couldn't go to the washroom. So uh, you'd be beaten if you know you had done that as well. So there was, it just there was so many people involved in the uh, in the abuse. One of the brothers, which was really interesting, I have I still have the letter. When he left, uh, I actually wrote to him, and this would be grade three, that I missed his punches. So I actually have this letter telling this priest that I missed his punches at the time. Uh, I don't know what that was all entailing, but that just shows how uh, much ingrained in the fabric of that education that I was getting was about the abuse. And of course that abuse was all about power and submission, you know, um, but using those kinds of things to talk about an all loving God, it, it really confused me as a child because you learn lessons about Jesus and how God is all loving and all powerful. But then me as a non-Catholic going into the school and I was baptized Catholic, they, they put me through the indoctrination and I became an altar boy. Um, it, it became this, this fear-based religion where I had to do things to earn God's love. And these things that were being done to me were to cleanse me for God's love. So it was very confusing. And as a child, not being, a, not being sexualized at that age, extremely frightening and extremely traumatic. There were people that were in that school in power that were punching eight-year-old children? Mm. Oh, yes. It was quite common. That's, that's, that's unbelievable. I, I, I can't even I can't even fathom it. I can't even imagine a grown man punching an eight year old child that that or or whipping them with an electric cord and and stuff. So I'm and I'm and I'm glad that your mom that must have that must have really tore at her heart when she found out what had been going on with you all that time. Well, you know, it's, she blames, she's still alive. Uh, she's, her health is really poor right now. She blames herself every day for what happened. And I keep telling her, it wasn't your fault. You didn't know. And, you know, when I wrote the book, uh, because um, I felt it was really important to tell my story, um, the dedication is to my mom, who I call my, my general Leia. She's, she's, She's the one that pulled me away because uh, just a few weeks before um, this incident with the whipping, uh, one of my the principal who was my main abuser had grabbed me by the back of the neck after um, basically a rape attempt and um, threw me down the stairs. So I have a scar on my chin to this day where I cracked my chin uh, at the bottom of the stairs and I was bleeding. Um, I never got stitches for it. But of course they said that I had fallen down the stairs because I wasn't wearing shoes. And, and so they always would make up accidents that happened. Even the photo, my initial kindergarten photo, I have a black eye in that photo from being hit by one of the priests, which they said I had been hit by a swing. So there was convenient excuses always given for, for what happened. But I do believe that if I had been put back in that school after that incident, um, and when he was begging my mom to bring me back to the school, I honestly think he would have, he would have killed me. 
I think I would have actually, there would have been a convenient accident to the school and I would have been dead. Now, in the last time that we talked, you mentioned something in regards to uh, discoveries that they're making or on the grounds of some of these schools that were operated in Canada. Uh, can you describe what they're finding? Well, it's really horrific. The uh, In Canada, there's... Um, it came out uh, during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, before the 2010 Olympics. Uh, there was a paper written, and they've been following up on that report, and they've been doing uh, ground-penetrating um, surveys of some of these former residential schools. And they found, you know, in some places, 215 bodies, you know, 300 bodies, 60 bodies in different places all across all across Canada. And uh, for those listeners who don't know what the residential schools were, they were schools that were run by the, the Catholic priests in consultation with the government of Canada. And it was where they would take um, uh, Indigenous children from their various tribes and families uh, and basically to westernize them, to uh, quote unquote, get the Indian out of them. And they would put them in residential schools where they were apparently taken care of. Um, however, so many died in the church's care and a lot of them, uh, their deaths were never recorded. So they're starting to find these mass graves of indigenous children that were killed by people uh, who were priests and nuns. Um, one of the more horrific things that I was told by my half-sister who also went to the school that I went to, uh, she made a comment off, off the cuff saying, well, wait till they find out about the furnaces and the incinerators. So there's been a, a comment she made to me that just made it even more horrific thinking how many other children were, were just burned away after their lives didn't matter to these people. So that, that's sort of the, the horror in Canada that Canadians don't want to speak about. And as a cis white male, what I find very interesting is there seems to be this convenient thing for um, white people in Canada to go, oh, well, that's so sad it happened to the Indigenous. Lucky it didn't happen to us. They don't seem to understand these priests that taught at these residential schools once they were closed. I mean, they, none of them were ever held accountable for what they did. And the church had a convenient way of moving priests from church to church, school to school, uh, sometimes changing their names. So the bishops had a lot of power to hide the identity of the perpetrators and to make sure that they would be all um, not have to be accounted for or accountable for their crimes. Now, I am sure that there are, by and large, the uh, priests in the Catholic Church and the nuns in the Catholic Church are all there for the right reasons, and, and they are there to help people. But I just want to point out that in the United States, they, the Catholic Church has paid out more than $3 billion to survivors of abuse. And um, part of that settlement that they have to do is that they sign a what's called a non-disclosure agreement which which prohibits them from ever speaking of it again uh, in, if they want to keep the settlement that they that's all part of the legalese that's put it together so so consequently it is a it may be and we we honestly sitting here I could I did some research I cannot find 
any statistics on how many people actually were abused in the in the system, as it were, in in the United States and Canada, um, because of the non disclosure agreements and the and the out of court settlements and that kind of stuff. Um, so so what's the status of where you're at? Are you are you seeking reparations for for what was done to you? Well, when I finally disclosed what happened, um, of course I went into therapy. I, you know, um, wanted to start my healing before I would even have a family. I wanted to make sure I had dealt with it. And I'm of course still dealing with it to this day. Uh, initially I filed a police report because in Canada, there was uh, no statute of limitations on physical and sexual abuse of minors. So, um, of course, <laughs> nobody wants to see a six foot four crying white man go to the police detachment and start crying and talk about being abused by priests. So they very quickly shut me down and I got shuffled around saying, you have to go here, you have to go there. And I followed this. Now, of course, this was really early on in my therapy. And that was a huge deal to be disclosing this to strangers and it would be so emotional and I would just break down crying. And um, so that didn't work. And then I ended up finding uh, a lawyer who was gonna take on my case. And this is well before the spotlight era. So before that whole incident that happened in Boston. And it just wasn't common for people to speak out or claim that they had been abused by priests. So she was just like, I, this is going to be really difficult for us. It's going to be really hard. Um, you know, you're not going to get much. And at the time, it wasn't about getting things. It was about getting an apology or to have them acknowledge what they've done and to help prevent things like this from happening to other people or to at least let other people know who had been abused that you're not alone. Because I felt like I was the only person in the world this had happened to. And that's part of it as well, to sort of isolate and make it feel like you're alone and you've got nothing as part of the uh, being a victim of, of this kind of abuse so um things didn't go well people were afraid to talk I, I spoke to a few survivors who were just very determined not to disclose anything uh we had death threats against my lawyer and i at the time um and so she urged me to just let it be just let it go um we i thought the case had been dropped it hadn't been and I know I told my lawyer at that time that I wasn't going to shut up about this because I felt wronged. I needed to seek an apology. And I wrote to the Pope twice or three times, you know, telling them what had happened. Of course, no correspondence was ever returned. And it was one of those things where I was needing to let people know that this isn't right. And so I finally had found another lawyer just a few years ago who was very excited to take on the case because they felt that this is important that our stories get out. And in between that time, I had done the stage play and I had started working on my book. And so she picked up the case just, uh, we had a, a, an announcement, I think back in January, the uh, sort of the revisitation of the lawsuit. And it's she's currently pulling her evidence right now and, and doing that. So it'll be in the news in the next couple of years again. And, you know, after all these other survivors have come out and all these stories have come out from all these communities, I'm not nearly as frightened as I was the first time around because it's, it's like attracts like, and it's amazing how many people and how sad it is, 
how many people have come to me and talked to me about their experiences of abuse and survival and the similarities of how victims are targeted. And for me, it was in the Catholic Church, but it can be in the Boy Scouts, it can be in any kind of organization. It's not limited to just the church. Any kind of group where you have adults, large groups of uh, big organizations where large groups of people are overseeing children, things like this will happen. And I'm seeing more and more of this pattern with abusers and also with the shame and guilt that survivors carry with them. And as a male, we're always told to suck it up, to be strong, to be a man. And there's all these misconceptions about what masculinity is. And I think that's very important and, and why it's important for me to tell my story. I'm six foot four, I'm a straight white male. I do stunts, I fight, <laughs> I, you know, um, I fought Steven Seagal. Uh, and, and so I'm in all senses of the word, a man. And yet, how many men are hiding and uh, this, this pain and guilt and suffering? Like as a male, very often, you know, when someone says, how are you feeling? You know, you go to, the, to, to go out for with your friends, your male friends, like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. It's not, how are you doing? Well, actually, today I slipped into a regression where I was feeling really sad about this abuse. And, and then people are like, no, I don't want to hear it. Like, it just... <laughs> As a male, we don't have that as many opportunities. It is changing, but still, you know, it's, there's this masculine toxicity within our culture of men having to be men and women don't like men who cry and men have to be the strong one and take care of everything. And I think there's a lot of re-education has to happen. And I think for, you know, hopefully I can be a role model, not a role model, but an example for men who are afraid to come out to disclose if they had been abused, that there are places they can go. There are people they can talk to. They don't have to announce it to the world, but by at least addressing that what happened to them as children was not their fault, I think can at least do a world of healing for them. Because if you don't deal with this kind of... Um, the feelings and after effects of being abused as a child, as you grow up, you can carry this cyclical form of abuse in the form of power against those younger than you to feel that it makes up for what you're lacking, if that makes sense. Oh, it's part of the seven, it's what I call the seven generation cycle, mm. which is the uh, parent will, uh, who oftentimes was abused themselves, become the abuser and then their child grows up and does the same thing, becomes the abuser as well. And it can continue generationally until somebody actually puts a, a, a stop to it and changes uh, how they're going to react to the next generation to, in order to get that to stop. Does that make sense? Oh, that completely makes sense. Yeah. And, and it's so, important. It's it important is. to tell our stories. It, it really is. And, and I'm just struck by the fact that you you were you put yourself out there because you needed to do that for your own well-being and for your own health um there are lots of folks that are have buried it deeply inside of themselves and are not coming forward because they don't want to deal with 
death threats. They don't want to deal with the Catholic Church, which is considered to be very powerful, or the Boy Scouts, for that matter, or any other large organization like that. And uh, and so, consequently, there's a lot of pain out there that is being unresolved that is then feeding down into the next generation. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I think one of the sad things about it is, as a survivor myself, um, you know, uh, I hid myself away. I tried to make myself as hidden as possible from adults when I, uh, the abuse was happening to me. I didn't want to stand out. And as I grew up, I buried myself in books and education uh, to hide away. And to this day, one of the one of the things that, you know, it's I'm okay with it, but it still saddens me sometimes. I do not have a large group of friends. I don't have a group of buddies that I go and hang out with and and do things with because there's a part of me that feels still to this day with all the healing and all the writing and everything else that I am an outlier, that I'm an outlander, that I there's something different about me. And I from after what happened to me, I cannot fathom doing that to other people. And so it, it puts me in this weird position of n- not trusting other males. So I, in, in a male group of friends, because I was abused by males, I don't necessarily trust men. So here that's, I am, you know. That's perfect. It's perfectly logical. Why would you? Your, your life experience has told you not to. Um, mm-hmm. Because of people that were in power that were supposed to be well, I give you an example. I had a little league coach. His name was Scotty Reed. He was more of a father to me at times than my own father was. I adored the man. He was perfect. He was a great guy. He never did anything off color. He would never do anything like that. That's the kind of person that that had a positive impact in my life. Whereas you take that same guy that's got the same power and he becomes he and and he uh, becomes an abuser then the guy that you think is going to be your protector and going to be help you and 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 really cares for you it, that's that screws up with your mind that's that really mm. makes it, it that really makes it tough doesn't it it does and you know and again like i said earlier is being groomed for the abuse and what i mean by that is you know i mentioned earlier my dad was a welder so he was always away on shutdowns on different mills and outside of the town away for weeks at a time. And so we had a priest before I went to school that would come by the house and visit my mom and, you know, be the friendly local priest. And it was all part of the grooming process. So because my dad wasn't there quite often, I was a perfect target for being groomed for abuse because I didn't have a regular father figure because my dad was often away working. Um, And you know, then I was groomed to keep the secret, you know, and that with a with such a heavy consequence, like if I told anyone, God was going to destroy my family. Now, this is being told to a five and six year old child. And remember, if people go, well, I would never believe that. Just think about how five and six year olds regard Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Oh, and yeah. then tell me that they don't believe. You you can't anybody in in my humble opinion. Anybody that will tell a five or six year old that they should have spoke up and, and mm. told on the priest, they're out of your mind. You're you just little kids aren't hell. There are adults that won't do that still, 
that, that are, you know, so, so you can't expect a little kid to be able to say, well, the priest is doing it. So how wrong could it be? It's, it's kind of, you know, you know what I mean? So, oh, but I, exactly. But, but I want to change the subject a little bit because I want to talk about how Star Wars came into your life and how that positively affected you. Okay, great. So I had been pulled out in that spring in 1977. And again, didn't have many friends. Um, I'll try to get as quick to the Star Wars as possible. There were some neighborhood kids. I was invited as part of the neighborhood to celebrate this one kid's birthday. And we were all taken out to go see Smokey and the Bandit. So, you know, Reynolds and Sally Field. Reynolds, Sally Field. So I was there. And at this point, um, I was feeding my secret and my shame with junk food. Like I was overeating as a child. I was this fat little kid after I got out of school because if I could make myself unappealing to my abusers, then that would be great. So, but food became a bit of therapy early on for me. And I did, wasn't really into this whole beer race and transams and, you know, some guy with a funny laugh and a cowboy hat. So <laughs> I went to the concession stand. There was a, a three cinema, uh, like a three different cinema Odeon that, that we had and in the one cinema they were playing smoking the bandit and i was buying my dr pepper and twizzlers because i used to love biting the ends off the twizzlers and using that as a straw in the dr pepper to drink every, every kid that great. i've ever known has done that yes oh i still do it to this day sometimes if i ever <laughs> find myself on a road trip so um there was this poster and it just said star wars and here i am buying my junk food and i just thought i'd pop in I was just drawn to the cinema like a tractor beam, no pun intended. And then I go in there and then there's this like white moving garbage can. And then there's this like golden robot thing. And then I had to keep jumping back and forth between the birthday party and Smokey and the Bandit and this Star Wars thing. But it got more, my excuses to leave the one group and go on my own to check out this Star Wars thing. And every time I jumped in, it was a different point in the story. So there's now this woman with buns on her head and there's this like walking <laughs> giant Sasquatch and it wasn't making sense, but it was really enthralling and exciting. So eventually uh, the kid whose birthday it was, I felt the hand on my shoulder because I had lost track of time and that movie had ended before Star Wars had. So I got dragged out of there didn't know how this thing was going to end and a few days later my dad took me to go see the movie for and so I got to see the whole thing from start to finish and I sat there and it was the music of the, the original theme and just watching this story of how this farm boy uh wanting to get off this sort of desert planet and immediately I was hooked I was thinking about my small town wanting to get away from there to get off that planet and, and and to go on an adventure but also teaming up with this band of you know you've got a space pirate you've got this like sasquatch you've got a garbage can that can talk to this golden thing um you've got this princess like how are they going to take on this organized evil empire so immediately i was drawing parallels between myself and the catholic church and the death star being you know the school that i went to so when they blew that thing up i was excited and i remember um that christmas asking my dad who he was in the first canadian parachute battalion so i remember that christmas asking my dad if he could get me grenades for christmas like i mean <laughs> didn't you know he was like 
I think they felt it was like a funny thing, but I didn't know why I wanted them. I was going to go blow up the school. Um, <laughs> luckily, that didn't happen. But um, but it was that whole sense of the morality, like the idea of right versus wrong. It was such a clear cut Joseph Campbell uh, hero myth, perfectly laid out. You know how good can triumph over evil and overcoming the odds. So I felt that my life is a struggle what has been happening and you know like and that the catholics were like the empire and i was a rebel so it became this sort of what i had lacked in the idea and what had been ripped out of me in terms of spirituality from the church started to come back to me in the idea of the force so the idea that the force isn't a god it's a it's a living entity that surrounds us and binds us all together and that we all come from it and go back to it yes it's a very simplified form of religious all religions really and it just makes so much sense and it's so much more peaceful to think of that as spirituality but we are we belong to the force and whether we choose the light or the dark and as a kid, you know, I always wanted to, to stay towards the light side of the force. But as I got older, I realized because of what happened to me as a child, I'm never going to be purely in the light because I've been so down in the deep darkness of the dark side. The best I can strive for, and I think any human can strive for, is to walk that balance between the dark and the light. So I, I technically call myself a gray Jedi. And that, yes, there are times where I will succumb to my darker thoughts and sometimes where I will succumb to my lighter thoughts, but it's finding that balance and to not, uh, and to know that I'm living the best life I can, living on both sides of the light and the dark. So that's how Star Wars really helped me with spirituality. And then of course, each movie that came out as I grew up with Star Wars gave me new lessons. Like Empire was all about that sometimes you cannot win. So there was all these, you know, and, and the idea of training, that's why I learned more about the forest, of course, is empire. So, and that's what led to my, my whole book is basically a, a story of how Star Wars literally did save my life and, and how the lessons from Star Wars, I continue to live in this day. So, I mean, my ex is very well knows when she comes to this house, it's covered wall to wall Star Wars. I mean, I still have uh, the very first figure from when I was a kid and it was after the abuse, my mom didn't know I had been abused and I'd seen Star Wars. We went to Reed's pharmacy and I saw this thing and I begged her for it. And she wasn't the kind of person that would actually buy things for me on a whim, but she did. And this little droid, this R2-D2 has been with me on so many adventures. Uh, and I've kept him with me, like when I was defending my doctorate, when I was getting married, like this, he's been on so many um, things. He's my sort of talisman. So uh, I still have him. And I've even built a full-size R2-D2 as well. So <laughs> it's out there. And sometimes full-size R2-D2 goes with me uh, on, on that too. There's my full-size one right there. Oh my goodness. Uh, it looks exactly yes, like the original. It's exactly. And it's fully functional. It, uh, it goes out sometimes when I get coffee, he'll come along with me and he'll chat up the baristas and they love him. So, you know, that is, that is, that is just, you know, I always thought because I had the same feeling of you that you did that, uh, the force is everywhere and the force surrounds us. And that is the universe and it is everything about it. And it did, it, it was, and you're right. It's a very sp simple, uh, version of spirituality, but in our little human pea brain, that really is all we need. 
if mm-hmm. if if we believe that uh, that the force is with us, um, and and even some Yoda, I and will occasionally use the Yoda Yodaism of uh, you know the gospel according to Yoda, which is mm. do or do not, do not try. Or I, I forget. There how is that. no try. There is no try. That's, do that's or do me. not. There is no try. <laughs> <laughs> And, Touch and, me by my size, do you? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. No, no, and but that is, but you see, that is uh, so, so righteous that that uh, because that that very simple statement is so true. Uh, you either do it or you don't. Uh, you can't try and uh, and oh well, I tried. Uh, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't work. You either do it or you don't. And uh, that's, that's, you know, a, a motto that I try and live by is you either do it or you don't and, uh, and, and stuff. And, and I think, I should think George Lucas and uh, Steven Spielberg were, were uh, amazing uh, when they, when in, in the work that they've done to, to bring that more to light. And so I'm glad that in that sense, they were able to help you, even if it was just a little bit. Oh, definitely. And, you know, even when I teach, I, I always start by telling my students, like, they had two big rules uh, when I'm teaching. And one is uh, the courage to create and freedom to fail. And that is a huge thing. We are so success oriented in our lives. And it's only really through failure that we can really see where we need to grow from. And it's only through failure that we grow. So if we succeed at everything, well, then wonderful. That's great. You've won life. But we continually, I think, we need to embrace the failures we have that'll guide us to what we need to do so the next time we may go a little further. So, I, and again, that's still a very simple philosophy of Jedi teachings and the Force. And, you know, there really is no failure. If you're trying, I mean, I, I, I'll give you an example. 18 years ago, I was at KKNW and I was had a show called, oddly enough, Positive Talk Radio, and I and I was doing it two hours a day, five days a week. Well, um, I, after eleven months, I had to give it up for financial reasons. And um, and everybody that I've talked to since has said, "Well, you know, it didn't work, but you tried, and 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 you did your best to make it make it happen, rather than wishing that I had done that and never doing it." And so, so you you did. You didn't try. You did. I did. And it exactly. was it was a phenomenal show. There are people still today in the Seattle area who remember that show fondly, and uh, and that's that's why I brought Positive Talk back because I wanted to recreate what that was and continue forward with it. And and this week, um, I think congratulations are in order. I just finished my six hundredth episode. Of- Amazing. And so it's I've got I've got 600 that are in on positivetalkradio.net. Oh, th- thank you, thank you. <laughs> but my applause is bigger than your applause. Now, Kevin, we explain this. <laughs> no competing. <laughs> I know. Just say thank you. Um, it, but it's uh, so I'm very proud of of what I've done, and I'm very proud of doing shows like this, Nicholas, because you are there are people out there that you are going to be able to help, who are going to say, you know, that happened to me too. I buried it for all these years. These are the consequences that have happened to me because of me burying it all these years. Maybe I need to go talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. 
And that's so important. And to, for people to know they are not alone, you know, it's, you know, it's so important. You know, I was, when I was a bus driver and uh, when you, when you're a bus driver, you can get into trouble for all kinds of things. You can hit things, you can hit people, you can be mad at somebody, you can, you can uh, uh, kick somebody off the bus. You're not, so you can get into a lot of trouble. And I was thinking to myself, gosh, I don't want to get into any trouble. But then I thought, you know, there is nothing that I could possibly do that hasn't happened before. Mm. And so the same thing holds true in life and what happened to you. It was not particularly you. It was not because of you. It was the system and how it was done. And there was nothing that happened to you that hasn't happened to multiple kids elsewhere. But what you're doing, and I applaud you for it greatly, is what you are doing is you are not letting it just sit there and fester and you're trying to address it so that you can come out the other side and live your life the way God intended you to live your life. Or the way the force has or made the it force. happen. Yes. And, <laughs> and, uh, and you can be, and you can, and you are that Jedi. Oh, I am. I am a Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> and you're doing you're and you're doing everything well by the way we are talking with uh nicholas harrison and you can go get the book it is called safe space the true story of faith betrayal and the power of the force and it's 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 out now and um it give it to somebody that you know that in their quiet moments have said to you that they had an abusive episode when they were a kid. And and honestly, it's not all depressing. It's not like a huge <laughs> sob story. Um, I do go to the darker places in the book, but I also do balance it out with some humorous stuff as well and inspiration. So don't think it's a dark, depressing read. People who have read it, I'm really quite shocked at the reviews. It's very humbling to see these reviews on the book where people are just loving and they feel like people have sat down and read it in one sitting because they can't put it down. And that makes me feel great that I've written something that people feel they can't put down, as opposed to teachers I've had who've been like, I could barely get through your essay. So this is a nice change. <laughs> I'm a firm believer, sir, that, that each of us has the obligation to share our experiences with others that perhaps, just perhaps, if it can change one person's life, you've done a, a monumental thing to help people. Mm. And this, and this goes for everybody. We should all be striving to do something great for ourselves and, uh, and share our experiences with others, both positively, either, even from the light and from the dark, because the dark can be inst as instructive as, as the light is. Do you agree? I completely agree with that. That's, that's awesome. So you are, let's see. Let's go, go down the list again. You're a stuntman. By the way, I got to ask you, Steven yeah. Seagal? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Steven Seagal. I have, there's, um, oh, my gosh. Um, there's one called, there's a movie called Kill Switch. It's the most horrific Steven Seagal movie you will ever watch. When they shot it, they needed to add 30 minutes of action to release it. So myself and a few other stunt people were called in, and in three days, we did over 250 setups to add action footage to match what Steven Seagal was doing. And the funny thing is, like, I'm 6'4", Steven Seagal is 6'5". I'm, like, 230. I think he's over 300 pounds. 
Um, so he's got a huge belly. Did you have to wear a fat suit? Did you have to wear a fat suit? Is that what we're saying? They basically (laughs) dress him in long coats and stuff to hide everything. So that was fine. Mm -hmm. However, make him look slimming. So I had students of mine that were playing and not to advocate drinking, but they were playing drinking games to do a shot every time they could see Dr. Nick, as opposed to Steven Seagal in these terrible setup shots so i have stunt doubled him i hate to say but i also had to stunt double an actor named alec ponovic who's a fighter who wanted a stunt double because steven seagal is legendary for hitting people so i actually was alec ponovic stunt double and another one i think it was called Rusland when we shot it they of course called it some other name it's a russian where he's the russian mobster and I had to double Alec in that one and Seagal had to fight me. So I've actually literally had to fight Steven Seagal. Great anecdote on that. He likes to kick people in the groin. I knew this. And when I was working on Scooby-Doo 2, I wore a daisy chain. I was the Black Knight in that movie. So when Velma kicks me in the groin, I double over as the Black Knight. Uh, It's a very simple device. Hard to explain how it works, but it's very simple. I was wearing it, didn't tell anyone. One of the takes, Steven Seagal hauls off kicks me between the legs. I go down pretending that, you know, I'm hurt and all this stuff. And then he stops doing that. And then he kept leaving set the rest of the day to ice his foot. And um, <laughs> on the way back, uh, I was walking back to the circus to, to where we get our makeup taken on and off. And his escalade with his Russian bodyguards goes by and the window goes down and he's like, great job today. Well done. And I was like, okay, thanks. And I go in and I was telling them all about it. They were laughing because apparently that foot was the foot he had broken a few years before in Bali or something. And now the reason he actually said good job to me, one of two things. And one of them is either he thought I, you know, alpha male called his bluff. So he respected that, that I called him out and was like protecting myself. However, I think the more unfortunate logical explanation for him probably in his mind was that somehow I had mastered the art of being able to take a kick to the groin and have steel, you know, you know, like Cajones. steel groin. Exactly. You're welcome. Right? Yeah. So he's probably like, he's like, he's mastered the art of Baldo or something. <laughs> and I'm just like, that is more likely what he probably thought. Um, very interesting character. I've got other stories that I probably cannot share on air, but um, interesting piece of work. <laughs> well, the last the last show that we did, um, and I, I I I will clean this up for. Uh, for uh, uh, Benny so that we Thank don't you. have to worry about Thank it. But you. I was watching The Tonight Show, and um, I, I, an actress was on who is on, um, um, oh, I forget what show she's on, but he says, well, I got to see your first episode, and I got to see your butt. And she said, no, that wasn't my butt. Yeah. She said, that was somebody else's butt. And, 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 and so I mentioned that to you. It was a butt double. You, yeah, it's a butt oh, double. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned to me that. Uh, um, Norm, Norm time, McConnell. Yeah, one time that you you four stunt doubles were taken yes. to to into tell us that story. Oh yeah, well we all had to go in. We were called in for a special special audition, and it was uh, Norm McConnell when he was still around years ago. He was doing a, a comedy movie. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, we had to line up in front of him and drop our pants just to our underwear, and he had to then select which one was the best stunt butt for him. So when people think about the glamorous industry of the film industry, that is not it. Thank goodness it was like at least, um, you know, pants, like underwear on. 
Um, but it was very weird. And of course, I was I was triggered by that too. And I'm glad I didn't get it because that was early on in my career and I was just felt like this is just weird. But yeah, those are the weird things that you you do. Um, I've uh, I remember working on um, Scary Movie 4. I was doubling uh, Craig Berko. I was his stunt double. And one of the things, and this is working for the Zucker brothers. Uh, and so uh, they make things up as they go. They love, like, when a gag comes up, they will stop everything and they'll redo it. And we were doing, it was a spoof on uh, Tom Cruise's War of the Worlds. And there was a part where they get sucked up into this giant butt, the iPod. You know, they each get, you know, like the tentacles bring them up into this. Literally, it looks like a butt on a toilet seat. And they were, of course, working it out with us as a stunt people. So when they got to me, and of course, Craig and I are the same size. uh, And this was like a latex butt hanging up that I had to get like pulled up into feet first however when they started pulling me in there wasn't enough um like uh talcum powder to let me slip in through the butt so they had to keep releasing the ratchet and then pulling me in and the zucker stopped and they were looking at and they all started howling and so if you watch the shot now in the movie and Craig added on to it where there's a shot where they're trying to pull him in, like they were trying to do with me into this thing. And then he's having like a, a burger and a Coke while he's waiting to be pulled in. He's just... <laughs> so yeah, that's the glamorous side of the stunt industry. So those are just two examples. By the way, that's that's the next book you're going to write is, <laughs> is going to be talking about all the weird little things that go on in the in the uh, movie business that we would have no earthly idea. And, and, as a matter of fact, real quickly, there was I was talking with another, I, I can't remember if it was you or somebody else, but they were saying that they that there are because they don't shoot films in sequence. I asked them, how does the actor know when you're shooting like the end of the movie in the beginning? How do they know how to act? because they haven't been through the entire thing yet. And, then, and he was saying that, or it was either you or somebody else, was saying that they actually have people who do that now, that, that will yes. be there to make sure that you are in the character at that moment that you're supposed to be. Is that mm-hmm. right? No, it's true. And there's a whole range of people. Like they have continuity people. You've got your script supervisor. And, and then con- continuity is a huge thing. And you'll always see that where people post things about this continuity is different than this one because throughout the shoot of a show if a show goes on for four months there's going to be some turnaround within the crew and you'll find there's i've seen movies where a cast is on one person's uh, on a person's right leg in one scene and then another scene it's on their left leg and like yes. wait a minute what how did that happen um so there's things like that that happen too so yeah it, it, there's a uh, hundreds and hundreds of people involved in all those aspects when you're shooting a film. It's great, though. I love it. We've been talking with Nicholas Harrison. Get the book, Safe Space, the true story of faith, betrayal, and the power of the force. Sir, thank you very much. We've just got about a minute left. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we're done? Uh, all I'd like to add is how great it has been speaking to you. And, you know, I feel that the force is strong with you as well. So, Uh, And I do hope people read the book because I think it's a lot there. And I do have a chapter about working in the film industry and a horrible stunt accident that I had. So that's in the book too. Next time you're on the show, we've got to talk about this horrible (laughs) stunt accident. I got a few. (laughs) 
Thank you so much. And by the way, this is PositiveTalkRadio.net. Go there and you can get all the shows uh, that we've done. And I thank you for being here, Nicholas and Benny. Thank you. And by the way, be kind to one another because each other is all we got. We'll see you Wednesday at 4. Have a great day.